Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Chris Tilling. Chris is graduate tutor and senior lecturer in New Testament studies at St. Melitus College. He edited the book Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, which is where we begin our conversation today. We spend some time on the nexus between Chris and Douglas Campbell, the controversy Campbell caused in Pauline studies, differing views within Pauline studies, and ultimately we get into Chris' views. I would like to take a moment to explain in broad strokes the terminology and the title we begin discussing. The New Perspective on Paul is a movement that attempted to reevaluate Paul. Generally, people say that it began in 1977 with the publication of E.P. Sanders' Paul and Palestinian Judaism. There are some who would say that it really began with Christer Stendhal in 1963 with the publication of his essay, The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. It really doesn't matter when it began. It is essentially the idea that from the Reformation on, there was a misunderstanding about Paul because there was a misunderstanding about the Judaism of the Second Temple period, and that is to say the Judaism of Jesus and of Paul and of early Christianity. Essentially, they were rejecting the idea that Second Temple Judaism held a legalistic view of salvation analogous to the Catholicism Martin Luther went to war with in the 16th century. In addition to Sanders and Stendhal, there was also James D.G. Dunn and N.T. Wright. But that's just a little bit of context so that you can understand the book title being Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, that they're talking about from the 60s or 70s into the early 2000s, the dominant point of view being these new perspective guys. And now here you have a guy in Douglas Campbell coming along, even turning that table over. Real quick, I want to call out the books that were mentioned in this podcast because there were so many. I will put all of them in the show notes with links to them out there in the wider world for listeners to be able to go find them, probably purchase them if they want. So obviously the book I've mentioned already, Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, Reflections on the Work of Douglas Campbell, edited by Chris Tilling. Deliverance of God, an Apocalyptic Rereading of Justification in Paul by Douglas Campbell. Commentary on Galatians by Martin Luther. The Letter to the Romans, Paul Among the Ecologists, Sigve K. Tonstad. The Letter to the Romans in the New International Commentary on the New Testament by Douglas J. Moo. The New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, Volume 9, Acts, Introduction to Epistolary Literature, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians, edited by Leander Keck, and Paul for Everyone, Romans, Part 1, by N.T. Wright. Additionally, Chris recommends a couple of podcasts. So those are on script, all one word, but spelled exactly as it sounds. And then Apocalypse Here. Just like the movie, except rather than now, you're talking about here. So On Script and Apocalypse Here were the two places he recommended listeners go. So without further ado, I'm excited to give you my talk with Chris Tilling. 
Chris Tilling, welcome to the podcast. Before we start in the actual discussion, I'd like to ask the guests to tell me a little bit about themselves. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for the invite. Um, what to say? Probably the most important thing to say about me is that I'm a dad. I've got two beautiful kids. And uh, in fact, I'll be looking after them today because my wife is working in London. I've worked in uh, London in, in a college called St. Melitus College. It's the, it's the largest Anglican theological college in the country, probably the, the largest theological college in the country, full stop, that has centres across the country, but I tend to be based in London mainly. So I live just outside of London near Gatwick Airport, actually. If anybody's ever flown over to this country, they might have heard of Gatwick. And uh, my main interests revolve around the Apostle Paul and uh, and bridging Paul's letters and theological truth claims, systematic theology. So I've, because of a long story that I won't get into now, I've, I have an awful, I've got a great debt to Karl Barth and uh, and theology inspired by Bart. And so I like to bring those two into mutual dialogue, which is one reason why we will be talking about the book that we'll be talking about later on. Fantastic. And that book, just so the listeners know, is Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, Reflections on the Work of Douglas Campbell. Can you just explain the context for how that book came to be? Oh, yeah. The book, so the immediate answer is the book emerged out of a couple of different conferences, one at King's College London and the other at Duke University, where Douglas Campbell is based. So that's the immediate answer, but there's obviously a much longer story behind this. And it really, the book emerges out of a frustration, primarily, that the pioneering work of Douglas Campbell wasn't being assessed in scholarly circles in a way that was particularly helpful. As far as I could see it, Douglas Campbell, and I still think this, by the way, but certainly back then, Douglas Campbell was the most brilliant scholar working in Pauline's scholarship. He was a few steps ahead of everybody else, as far as I could see. And though there may be problems with aspects of his argument, I wasn't seeing constructive engagement in scholarship. I, I read a series of reviews that either caricatured him, misrepresented him, or were completely missing the point. So I think the book emerged out of a frustration that we need to do better to generate academic discussion about the deliverance of God, Douglas Campbell's monster graph, as I call it at the beginning of that book. But there's another story even further behind that one as well, namely my own journey with the Apostle Paul and how do we read Paul's letters. That question had been 
on my professional horizon as a lecturer for a number of years. I began lecturing uh, in at St. Melitus College almost 15 years ago. And when I started, my imagination was dominated largely by Anglo-American scholarship inspired by Tom Wright. And I'm very grateful for Tom. And I consider him a brilliant scholar who I've learned much from. But what I what I discovered in teaching Paul, when I wasn't teaching on Christology in Paul, which is really my field, was that some students ended up feeling a little bit disempowered when I was going through Tom's account of the grand sweep of the story of Israel and how Paul fits in. In particular, they weren't particularly excited about the reading. Jesus didn't seem to be shining as fiercely and brightly as I would have hoped through my portrayal of how Tom and others were presenting Paul. And a little bit like Karl Barth in Saffonville, I felt ill-equipped to lecture these students, many of whom were going on into ordination and they threw ordination into curacy and leading churches. I, I didn't feel as though I was equipping them in the best way possible. So I read widely around Pauline scholarship, searching for different answers to familiar questions. And I stumbled across A Quest for Paul's Gospel by Douglas Campbell, which I devoured and thought this is very interesting, but I'm not convinced. But I could see that he was going to be a major player, a brilliant voice in a lot of the debates that were to emerge. And then I waited until The Deliverance of God was published. And and I read that book, and believe me, it's flipping massive, this book. I read it a few times in order to understand it, because it was asking me to join dots that I didn't even realize needed to be connected. Very demanding book, very difficult to to follow, even though it's written with great clarity. And I ended up meeting up with Douglas as well, and we actually began a friendship, that a lifelong friendship at that period. And slowly but surely, I started to see what he was doing and why it mattered. And it dovetailed brilliantly, perfectly with my own insights into Paul's Christology, that ultimately reading Paul is all about the centrality of Jesus Christ. And Douglas Campbell had captured this in a way that others hadn't and had articulated it in a way that I found deeply compelling. I still ended the book after having read it a few times with questions, but that was the point. So the deliverance of God inspired Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, which was a couple of um, conferences assessing the deliverance of God. So that was where I stood when the book was published. I've moved as well since then. I've changed my mind on a few things, and I'd love to talk about that. But that's effectively the background to the book Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. So I won't claim to have finished Deliverance of God, but I have started it <laughs> a couple of times. And a combination of being a non-expert and being a slow reader who's easily distracted 
<laughs> by things that deserve being distractions and things that don't, I will say it's a really good example of what I'm aiming at in this podcast, which is all of these different disciplines that funnel into biblical studies. The thing that stood out to me, and it's really early in the book, is this whole chunk kind of assessing the sociology of conversion. But then reading his essays and others' essays in Beyond Old and New Perspectives, it's a lot of literary stuff, which th that's the stuff that kind of captivates me to say, I don't know what they're talking about, but I, I guess that's where I wanted to start is from a literary or rhetorical point of view, what is Campbell doing that's engaging maybe differently than other people in, yeah, in New okay. Testament studies? I'm, I can boil it down in, into a, in a nutshell. I'll start off with a more condensed and complicated statement, thesis statement, if you like, that D Douglas's work is going beyond other Pauline scholarship because he is juggling four balls instead of three. He's a New Testament scholar who knows his theological chops. He knows that in making claims about Paul's theology, we need to make sense. And, and many biblical scholars aren't trained to think in a theological way about their own claims. They'd rather let the cards fall where they will. Let the chips fall and when, then we'll, let the systematic theologians pick this up. But he realized that, this is, that in order to present a coherent reading of Paul, we need to have coherence, not absolute coherence, but some coherence. And I think that's what separates him from others. He's aware of tensions that emerge from other readings. And those other scholars aren't even aware of the problems that he's addressing which is what I mean by saying he's juggling another ball. He's a step ahead or a couple of steps ahead in, in that regard. I can boil it down now into something a little bit more user-friendly, if you like, a little bit more simple, if that would help. You, I, I want to hear the longest or shortest, whichever you're interested in telling <laughs> us. Okay. I like to put it like this. Many of us for complicated reasons, certainly in the West, for complicated political, socio-economic, ecclesial, theological, philosophical reasons, have become immersed in a certain set of scripts that determine how we read language in Paul, like language like faith or justice, or justification, or hope, or, or whatever, or works, all of these load bearers, they tend to mean something very specific in light of this script, which we're all swimming in, whether we know it or not. It's a kind of story, or narrative, or set of propositions that dominate our imaginations as readers of Paul, and effectively, it looks like this. And as I summarize it, you'll probably think, I've heard that before. <laughs> I know this. And 
And so that won't be a surprise to anyone. But it begins really with an account of the problem that humans are sinful and God is holy and just. And because God is holy and just, because we're sinful, we deserve punishment for our sins. And more than that, we should know better as humans. We we as pagans or Gentiles know God through the way things are made. Jews know God through the giving of Torah. But nevertheless, all of us still fail, which then leads to this conclusion. Not only are we sinful, we are culpable. We're guilty. And so we're in this situation. Call it box A, if you like. We're all stuffed into this desperately tragic scenario where to have relationship with God, we should live perfectly holy lives, but we don't. But we don't live those perfectly holy lives. And and that means we're heading for the judgment of God, asbestos underpants time. So how do we move from the bad position, this this rigorous contractual framework to a more generous uh, situation, a more generous contract. And this is what God has provided by making available through the death of his son a way of obtaining salvation. But the contractual requirements are now much more gentle, much easier. That means we don't need to live perfect lives. We believe and only believe by faith alone we can access all the good stuff. And of course, as you can probably imagine, this particular theological approach to reading Paul also activates a particular account of atonement theology. So the cross is the primary focus of things. The resurrection simply says, yeah, Jesus was the son of God, but the salvific stuff happens in the death of Jesus on the cross, where he satisfies God's righteousness or God's wrath or God's judgment, depending on how you particularly frame that. In other words, there's a certain account of the blood and the significance of that. That, So how do we get from box A to the good stuff? Box B, by faith, by activating what God has made potential, believing, so that we get saved. And then we can talk about sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, living together in community, and all of those things. And as I like to point out to students as well, this then has an account that presents the solution as a mirror to the problem. The problem is primarily that we're sinful and therefore guilty. And so the solution tends to focus upon the, the forgiveness that we achieve through Christ. There's a strong emphasis on forgiveness and often coupled with an account of imputed or infused righteousness, depending on your particular tradition. And I think, so this is a script that's probably not alien to you, right? You probably heard variations of this lots of times. Yep. I think it's fair to say. And I, and Douglas Campbell's argument says this, that if that is your imagination, if this script is controlling your imagination as readers of Paul, 
then you're going to be seriously hindered in understanding almost anything related to faith, justification, works, hope, being in Christ, communal living, ethics, eschatology, ecclesiology. We are going to find ourselves making massive exegetical missteps and mistakes if that's controlling our imagination as readers of Paul. So he spotted a problem and says this leads to chaos when we're reading the text. It won't help us. In fact, it represents, it mirrors a more modern epistemology, anthropology, theology than we might imagine. It is indebted to individualistic and contractual concerns that emerge in the modern period and are actually quite alien in many ways to the Apostle Paul's own cultural encyclopedia, symbolic universe, and so on. And so he presents a different account of Paul's gospel. And uh, this isn't too controversial, and I'll get on to that in a moment perhaps, What he, his positive case. His, what's more controversial is his elaborate description of what I've just gone through that this is a problematic reading of Paul and we actually need to get rid of it and not accommodate it, that there's no merging of this into another way of reading Paul that makes him a bit nicer. Actually, the whole thing needs to be binned, even if there might be bits of it that are redeemable. Effectively, that's his controversial move in a theological way, in a meta way, but that's not Paul's gospel, he says. So we can perhaps get to this now. What then is Paul's gospel, according to Campbell and others of his ilk? He wouldn't articulate it exactly as I'm about to do. This is more of a Tilling-esque reduplication of some of the things that Campbell has come up with. But effectively... The gospel that Campbell and others see in Paul is far more Trinitarian. I would add to that. I don't think Paul is a Nicene Trinitarian, but I think Paul is a Trinitarian. I've got an essay that's floating around online in which I make this case. But it goes like this. God in love. So it's out of the resources of God's own generosity and kindness, God sends Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's not provoked by us or our beauty, but out of while we were still sinners. So it's an unconditional act of God's benevolence and generosity and love on behalf of those who deserve nothing. God sends Jesus Christ, and he assumes our enslaved Adamic nature. He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became sin for us. And then Jesus dies on the cross. He, so he, he descends even to death on a cross. So there's a, a motif of descent here. Then the ascent comes, because this is not the end. By the power of the Holy Spirit, or through the glory of the Father, God raises him from the dead by the power and Jesus is now seated at God's right hand in glory where he lives to make intercession for us and so this is a story of descent and ascent and it's trinitarian in nature God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit 
all involved. And the key to understanding Paul's gospel, as I say to cohort after cohort of students, is this, because we're not quite there yet. This is Paul's gospel. That story that I've just narrated is our story. That's it, in a nutshell. We participate in the death of Jesus. Paul said, we believe that one died, therefore all died. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we will believe that we will be raised with him. It's an astonishing statement. We will be raised with Jesus. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. In Romans 6 is all about being buried with Jesus through baptism into death. And being, and therefore we shall be raised like him. And therefore consider yourselves dead to sin because you're dead to sin in Christ. So it's a very different account of the gospel. And what, where it leads us is to a very different account of Romans in particular, but also elsewhere in Paul's gospel. And deliverance of God is an attempt to reread Romans so that this so that Romans is coherent with what Paul says everywhere else in his letters but you, perhaps you can see there's quite a disjunct between the two the second way of narrating Paul's gospel is trinitarian and unconditional and the problem isn't simply that we've sinned and that we've done wrong and therefore we're guilty but that sin enslaves and so we need to be delivered from its power. This is a very big difference. And it, and the first model, if you remember, that I narrated, is very much focused on guilt and forgiveness. And it is an interesting one. If you were to have a look at a beautiful commentary, by the way, it's written by Martin Luther on Galatians. It's filled with some mad bits, but there's some beautiful nuggets in there. But if you were to do a search for the word forgiveness in Martin Luther's commentary, or Vergebung, if you want to blow yourself and go for the German, then you will see forgiveness on almost every flipping page. Then do a search for the word forgiveness in Galatians, and you will find it zero times, which should alert us already to some textual dissonance. So we have a different account of the problem, and a different account of the solution. And the second model is much tr more Trinitarian and unconditional, whereas the first doesn't need a trinity and is contractual and conditional on humans activating this by some means. And of course, there's disagreement in the Reformed tradition as to how we might understand that, how free will is to be related to the grace of God, Calvinists and Arminians and all the rest of it. We don't need to get into those wrinkles now. But perhaps you've got enough there to see the kind of dynamics that he's trying to tease apart and how we should approach Paul. I, yeah. I, so where, what I'm wondering right now, though, is, okay, so we're saying this, this one understanding, Campbell has injected a different kind of understanding or approach. So now I'm talking to Chris Tilling. We can... The book is just a vehicle for us to start the conversation. So now the conversation has begun. So Chris Tilling, where textually, I guess, where would you have people begin? Like, where do you start trying to read Paul correctly? 
do you start in Romans? Do you start in, in Galatians? Where would um, you start? I give, I will give sort of two meta comments of advice to all students of Paul. Two hot tips for reading and understanding Paul aright before we get into scholarship and the texts. And the first is to take the historical particularity of Paul seriously. To think into Paul's world in his oddness and otherness as a crucial step that will help us resist reading our own voices into Paul, which is a very subtle thing, but we c- it's very easy to do. And then we end up just reading our own expectations, what we should find into his letters. So taking seriously his otherness, his historical particularity, and it's as, a, as an aspect of that, why he wrote particular texts. None of his letters are systematic theology from first principles. They're all pastoral letters, occasional texts, dealing with certain concerns in these communities, Romans included. And that's the first tip for reading Paul. And the church could have been spared a lot of pain had it taken that a little bit more seriously. Martin Luther's beautiful reading of Galatians and Romans was dogged by the projection of medieval Catholicism into Paul's opponents, which then fed an anti-Semitic agenda, which had horrific consequences in Europe in the 20th century. I don't think I need to elaborate on those. The treatment of the Jews is, of course, one of the great scandals of human existence. So this, this I think, is the, what, the first tip. The second is a more theological tip I give students, a criterion for a good reading of Paul. I would say that a good reading of Paul is one which leads us to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And the converse of that is a reading of Paul's letters that sidelines the unconditional love of God, qualifies it, pushes it to the side in one way, shape or form, or God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit has likely gone wrong somewhere. So they're the two tips that I offer students engaging Paul's letters. Now, as to where this lands textually, it's quite an interesting one, actually. You could start with Ephesians as a perfect summary of everything that I've just said in the second uh, in the second approach, the Trinitarian and unconditional one. You could work through large swathes of Second Corinthians, of course, three, four, five. You could work your way through the theology, which is really where Paul is just laying it all out in Romans five through to eight. You could work your way through large texts, large portions of Galatians and Philippians and so on. It depends what angle you want to take on this. If it's about the Trinitarian identity of God in articulating all of this, then I think almost any chapter of Paul's letters are useful because it's it's threaded throughout. If we want to talk about avoiding potentially dangerous readings of Paul, then we're going to have to work very closely and carefully through those texts 
that have a lot of those activators, namely those words, faith, justification, works, and that will mean working through Galatians and Romans in particular. But I like to uh, I like to spend time having introduced Paul's letters to students, diving into parts of Romans, and then I spend a lot of time in First Corinthians. My my go to texts for different reasons, but I'm writing a commentary at the moment on Second Corinthians, and uh, there is so much there that I will be drawing on in the years to come as well. What texts specifically do you jump into with your students? When you say, we only have a few weeks to to study, here's where we're going to go. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So what I like to do in the first session, I will go straight to Romans chapter 6, which we could do right now, if you like. He says, looking around for a Bible, he's surrounded by Bibles. So now it's the choice, which one? I have too many Bibles. My son tells me this. But Romans, of course, is an occasional text, the same as all of the others. Romans 1 to 4, in Douglas Campbell's reconstruction, and that's the most controversial part of it, the Socratic rereading, I would leave to the side, and certainly for undergraduates, push to a later week after I've gone through more typical uh, standard readings of Romans. But in Romans 6, I do enjoy picking up on the participatory nature of Paul's letters, which you can do pretty much anywhere, wherever Paul is mentioning the phrase en Christo, of course, which is a, a central theme throughout his letters, this being in Christ. But we often just begin in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. That's like enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. Actually, that one is probably better translated as the one who has died is freed from sin, namely Christ. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And a little bit later on in the passage, he gets then to the imperative. So this is all indicative, right? It's describing what God has done for us in, in Jesus Christ. We get to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so I like to use this verse as a way of capturing the participatory nature of Paul's thinking when it comes to Jesus Christ and the significance of this. But actually, we don't spend as much time on this as maybe others would. It is fairly self-evident, I think, what is going on here. What we I like to do this, is I, in my second week of teaching, undergraduate students, I like to go through readings of Romans I don't actually agree with. I'm not one of these people that thinks because somebody reads Paul differently, they must be evil. (laughs) I think we've got an awful lot to learn from uh, 
reformed readings, new perspective readings. And so what I do is go through Douglas Moo's reading of Romans and Tom Wright's reading of Romans. Two very different perspectives, indeed. We have a little bit of a slower trawl through the text, but as part of that, I simply raise some problems and questions in their reading to prepare them for a different way of potentially engaging with the text, to get them to think in theological terms about what is being said and whether the text actually supports what is being proposed or not. And the difference between moves and rights is usually enough to leave open some more fundamental questions about reading the text as a whole. At least that's my strategy so far. I do enjoy going through those uh, those Ro- Romans classes, though, because you start to see people wrestling with questions of substance right at the start of their undergraduate work. Wrestling with the question of what the gospel is. There's nothing more important than that. If you wouldn't mind, can we camp out for a minute with Moo and Wright? And it just in, in general, broad strokes, what are their readings and how do you juxtapose your reading with theirs? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's difficult to summarize Tom's in a nutshell. But I think it's D- Douglas Moo. D- Douglas Moo is an incredibly learned New Testament scholar, a very able exegete. And certainly if he and I were in a room, I would be the student and he would be the master, as it were. A very careful scholar. His reading of Romans tends to downplay the particularity of Romans. It's more of a theological treatise dressed up like a letter. And certainly the first eight chapters of Romans are primarily targeted, in his view, towards individuals. Already we see the activation of that script that I was mentioning earlier on, I think. He reads Romans fairly typically at the start. It's a letter, there's the thanksgiving. But from Romans 1.18 and following, right through to 3.20, we have the articulation of the problem that the gospel will solve, in his view. It's a rather extended one. But he considers all of this to be necessary so that the good news can be understood. And it's a fairly typical account which focuses on culpability and guilt. And when you get to the solution then, in Romans 3.21 and following, we see justification is very much about being right before God, being forgiven and in right standing with God. And this is something that we activate by faith, by faith alone. Obviously, Reformed readings will emphasize the alone aspect. Catholics get upset with that, of course. But... And Romans 4 is Paul illustrating this doctrine of justification by faith by making recourse to Abraham. Then we move into a different kind of discourse. Having now talked about how one gets saved or right with God through justification by faith, we move into how does a sinner end up ultimately in glory? Because they, Christ has defeated Adam. 
but Christians still must battle sin. This is Romans 6, moving on from Romans 5, but they can do so victoriously. And the law, Romans 7, because of the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, which will mean that justification will assuredly lead us to glorification. But Romans 9 to 11 is a little bit more of a hiatus in the argument. Paul is dealing with the question, according to Douglas Moo, does the transfer of covenant privileges to the church mean that God has rejected Israel? And Douglas Moo's reading of these chapters suggests, no, this is not the case. And it's chapter nine, it's because God is ever more narrowing down the focus. So it's not just Israel. God never promised to save all Israelites and so on and so forth through chapters 10 and 11 until finally we get the rather abrupt statement that all Israel shall be saved. Have some fun having a look at his commentary on how he navigates all of these chapters. Not his finest point, I don't think, in in that commentary. Then in chapters 12 to 16, it's a little bit more of a practical application or outworking of the gospel that has been articulated in theological broad brushstrokes in the previous chapters. The legitimate concerns of the government need to be taken seriously, the continuing validity of the law. This is always one of the interesting tension points in the Reformed tradition. The role of the law, it's the place it plays, and so on and so forth until you get the usual letter endings, benediction, travel plans, and then a little bye-bye, see you later, which is what you get towards the end of these Greco-Roman letters. And that's, in a really blunt nutshell, his reading of Romans. It is, of course, much more sophisticated than that. There's nuance all over the place that I couldn't possibly give in a brief summary. But I'm guessing that's going to be not too unfamiliar to you or to your listeners. I can't speak for my listeners, but... (laughs) It's a pretty good, I would say a pretty good representation as far as I know. I have never dealt with Moo specifically, but I have an understanding of Reformed theology and that, yeah, that scans. Yeah. But right, yeah. you're saying is, right, you're saying is a little bit more difficult to. Yeah, uh, it's a little bit more difficult nutshell. to put into a nutshell. But what I like to do first is just go through what people like about that summary of Romans, Moo's account, and what they dislike about it. And that's where we really start to get into the texts. Some of the problem texts some of the problems associated with theological truth claims involved with the activators, those key load-bearing words like faith. What role do they play? Does this actually make sense as a reading, not only of the Greek letters strung together into words and sentences and, and meaningful clauses and such, but also coherent theological sense and logical sense? And so we get into some of that. But Tom Wright's reading assumes a lot of things that won't necessarily be as familiar to to undergraduates. Paul, Paul is drawing on a wider scriptural narrative. Tom is a is an intertextual maximalist, in my view. He sees the story of Israel painted in broad brushstrokes everywhere in in the Bible. And, for example, when he's reading a, an Old Testament passage, 
that Paul quotes, he will go back to that Old Testament passage and then pull through not only the context of that passage, but the canonical context of that passage into Paul, into textual maximalist. So he sees that the primary story being God created the world and it is good, but things go pear-shaped. So God makes a covenant with Abraham in order to put things right. The families of the earth will be blessed through this covenant people. But this covenant people find themselves ultimately in the land of slavery. So God delivers them up out of the land of slavery, gives them the covenant stipulations, the Torah, which involves blessings and curses. And there will be a blessing if they're faithful and they'll be cursed if they're unfaithful. Blessing involves land to be a light to the nations. Cursing means that they'll be ejected and spat out of the land, exiled. The story unfolds through the conquest and through the judges and through the monarchical period until finally we find ourselves in the period of exile. The Assyrian and then the Babylonian exile. And ultimately, despite the return of exile of sorts, we're still waiting for the return of ex- from exile in the first century in one way, shape or form. This is the wider scriptural story that... Tom sees fundamental as a substructure to reading Romans in particular. So just as Zechariah said, just as you have been a cursing amongst the nations, O house of Israel and house of Judah, so I shall save you and you shall be a blessing. Tom sees that dynamic played out writ large in Romans. So Paul says, this is the gospel of Jesus, the son, according to the scriptures as attested in the scriptures. So this is Tom's justification for pulling this through. And he sees Romans not as about how do we get right with a holy God, but as a particular letter dealing with the relationship between Jew and Gentile. He uses a little bit of historical imagination to say that because of the Edict of Claudius and such kind of disturbance around someone called Crestus, I won't get into the details, but the point is that there were tensions drawn across ethnic lines in the Roman church between Jewish Christ followers and pagan Christ followers or Gentile Christ followers. And so Romans is written to to lay out a roadmap to show how these two ethnic groups following Jesus can live together and see themselves together in the plan of God. So that's the point of Romans. There's a little bit more of a concerted effort, even if I think it's misdirected, to give a reason why Romans was written. And so Romans chapter one is very typical. It's a letter. It's not made to look like a letter. It's a letter. It's not a theological treatise. It's going to be an account of the story of Israel and Jesus and the significance of Jesus in that. So Romans one eighteen to 32, it's pagan sin. It's very similar to reading to Mu, actually, at this point. Romans two is where things go different. Romans two for Tom is the big problem. It isn't that there's sin, it's that Israel sins. That Israel were given the law and they should know better, and that they have sinned, because Israel is the covenant people through whom God has promised to bring blessings to the founders of the earth, right back to Abraham. If that is the case, how is God's righteousness going to be manifest? Because God's righteousness is now two things. God's righteousness implies his impartiality, God's impartiality on the one hand, and it also implies God's covenant faithfulness to bring blessing to the families of the earth through his covenant people. But if the people of Israel sin, 
that means these two meanings of the righteousness of God contradict. It means that God cannot fulfill his covenant promises through this people because he's going to be busy punishing this people because he's impartial. And so the righteousness of God crashes into itself in Romans 2 and 3. And Romans 3.21, similar to Mu, Romans 3.21 provides the solution to this very particular problem, not just sin in general, but the sin of Israel in light of the covenant promises. And his move there involves understanding a couple of things that may be a bit more complicated. He reads the pistis Jesu Christu phrase as the faithfulness of Jesus Christ rather than faith in Christ. And he understands, and here he's surely right, he understands Messiah language as not just Jesus' surname, but as evoking a royal script, that Jesus is the royal Messiah. He's the kingly representative of Israel. He's the king of Israel, the true king of Israel. My, uh, uh, Some of my friends are deeply in, indebted to this particular reading, like Matt Bates. But the point is this, Jesus is the representative of Israel, and he is faithful. That's the point of 321 and following. So in if I were to just turn to Romans chapter 3 and read it in Tom Wright's tone of voice, it might make sense. Have I got his New Testament anywhere, I wonder? I don't know if I've got it here, actually. But it would go something like this, that the righteousness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, attested in the law and the prophets, is now manifest, is revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. I, that's not his exact translation. But that means 3, 21, 22, 23 is a solution to the problem of Israel's sin. Because now we have the king of Israel being faithful, which now means that God's righteousness doesn't contradict itself. But God's covenant faithfulness and his impartiality come together in Christ. So in Romans chapter 4, Tom turns to Abraham, Paul, sorry, turns to Abraham, not as an illustration of justification by faith and some doctrine like in Mu, but rather because this is the point of the whole narrative. It's all about the promise God gave to Abraham and that covenant people finding fulfillment. That's his reading roughly of Romans 1 to 4. I'll whip through the rest super quick. <coughs> Romans 5 to 8 is then about New Exodus, because the covenants have promises have been fulfilled. He thinks, Tom thinks that Adam going through the, coming out of the land of slavery, going through the Red Sea, going to Mount Sinai, going into the promised land, that narrative is the deep structure of Romans 5 to 8, because it's all about a new Exodus. So it's about Adam and Christ in Romans 5, going through something wet, the waters of baptism, coming out of slavery, not the land of slavery, but slavery to sin. Given dealing with the problem of Torah, this is Romans 6 and 7. And then instead of inheriting a strip of land in the Middle East, the land and all of that, you have the inheritance of the world and the renewal of the cosmos in Romans chapter 8, which leads us then to a re-reading of Romans 9 to 11 as effectively being the point of it all. It was always about the relationship between Jew and Gentile. Now it's becoming specific 
And then it all ends with some practical instructions about how you Jew and Gentiles can live together in light of this long narrative. Very different reading, isn't it, from Moos? Considerably. Yeah. And there are some strengths uh, and weaknesses to it. What do you think of it? Actually, I, I want to ask this before I forget, because I am easily distracted. So the fact that it's a letter, Romans or any of the Pauline epistles, they're letters. How important do you think that is as like a base when someone's reading it, one, and then two, how do people who are not in school or haven't gone to school for this kind of thing, how do they learn what it means that it's a letter from this particular context? Are there resources out there for people to help understand, like to find their base in this is what kind of writing he's doing? Yeah. Yeah. The question of letters, we have a lot of these Greco-Roman letters, and we know they had a particular shape. They all were X to Y greetings, then there'd be some kind of thanksgiving, then there'd be the body of the letter, then there'd be some travel plans, and then finally ending off with a benediction at the end. That was the genre of ancient letters. And that's enormously helpful for reading Paul's letters, because they all tend to follow this. Galatians, not. Galatians misses out the thanksgiving, because Paul is pissed off. So it's like starting a letter with oi instead of dear Galatians. It's oi Galatians, using our genre. So paying attention to that format of letters is really helpful for reading. If I may, I think for my American audience, it might be hey. Starting it with hey, okay, rather okay. than oi, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that's a, a good one. It's epistolary criticism, is what this is all about. But I think the more fundamental question that's useful, and this goes back to my op- opening two principles for reading Paul the question that is raised by focusing on the fact that these are letters is the particularity of these texts. Why were they written? An account of Romans cannot avoid this question, and we need to judge readings according to their ability to offer an answer to that question, a convincing one. Mu is way more nuanced in his commentary, but the contingency aspect tends to be a little bit downplayed by his commitment to this being a theological treatise dressed up being a letter, which is a little bit of a cop-out. And then when we just claim complexity later on, we don't allow our answers to why Romans is written to shape what we, what is going on in the text. Tom's account of why Romans is written could be a little bit loose. It's, it doesn't account for an awful lot in Romans. And this whole Crestus business in Suetonius might not be about Christ at all. Um, There's some problems potentially with both, but I guess for those who are fresh into all of this, I point them back to those opening two principles. If you want to read Paul right, dig into the commentaries, see what they say about why Romans, Galatians, and other texts were written. Try and imagine your way as best as you can into that ancient world and for the reasons why Paul wrote the text, and then be guided by those core theological dynamics which revolve around an unconditional triune God. So the reason that that stood out to me specifically is that it's a conflict between Campbell and one of the other authors is 
one of the comments, and I don't have it in my notes for some reason, I tried to focus on your essays when I was highlighting things and pulling notes, but uh, was, why wouldn't Paul just say this way? And Campbell's retort is, well, he would have expected the person he sent with the letter to perform it in a certain way. So the in in my head, one, I was born in 1983. So my understanding of a letter is I could write somebody a letter and send it and they get it. And all my intentions are supposed to be put into the text. Anything they get or miss is on me. Hmm. So just even that, but here we are 40 years removed from when I was born. And now an email could be even less impactful or I could put less energy into it. So me being so far removed in kind of my origin and understanding of what a letter is and someone who's half my age now sitting down and saying, oh, I'm reading a letter and they think of it in terms of an email. Oh, all the intent. Maybe they didn't get that he was being sarcastic or parodying this, but Mm -hmm. he was probably sending intentions along. Are there ways for just normal people to get that who else is talking about this kind of thing or is it just yeah that's a good one i think this is on translations you're right letters and our expectations around letters and emails have changed even within our own lifetimes i might get an email now that assumes i've read the paper trail underneath it the entire train of thought And there is a sense in which that's helpful for understanding certain texts in Paul, like Galatians, where we are in the middle of a conversation. And so we've got to do some work reconstructing the backstory so we don't cock it up, our reading. The expectation around performance was much more important in the first century, where illiteracy is higher. The reading of these texts wasn't simply somebody standing up and reading through it once and expecting everything to be understood first time round, it would be performed and explained. And so the person carrying the letter had a big job, and that would have been certainly briefed to them. This, that, this is just makes historical sense, simply, of the way in which letters were treated and unicals and all the rest of it. But I, I don't think it's easy for those who aren't experts to do this without a translation that supports them. So Douglas is at the moment working on his Romans commentary, and he has, I think he's finished his translation now. He might even make that available on his webpage. We should check it out actually later. But that's a great place to start. But there are others who followed him. There's, what is that commentary? I am very sorry to have forgotten. It's Tomstad's Romans commentary. It's a good one. It's in the Earth Bible Commentary series, Sigve Tonstad. That's a great place to go. It's something that's already been published. There are a couple of essays available as well in Preaching Romans, I think it is, and Four Views on Paul at a more general meta level. But actual translations of Romans, I think are forthcoming. There's, let's say, this Tonstad's is already out. Douglas Campbell's will be published before too long. But in general, I would recommend those who are, they'll listen to this and think, oh, this is interesting. 
not quite convinced I agree with all of these blunt categorizations and distinctions that are being driven and so on and so forth, I would encourage listeners simply to read Romans in as many different translations as possible, just to get a feel for the flexibility of interpretive exercises. And the NRSV updated edition will be very different from the ESV or the NIV, all worthwhile looking into while we wait some more substantial revisions with Douglas Campbell's commentary. Any idea when that's coming out? Oh, I've been encouraging him to get to it. I I don't know. He's doing some very important work in prison ministry um, at the moment. And I think he's probably wrestling with whether he even wants to do it. <laughs> it would be my guess, but do pray for him that he manages to produce this work. There is a book that he's writing together with John Depew that'll be published much sooner. It may be that he'll include it in there. I need to check in with John and Douglas on that. Maybe we could encourage them to include that translation there so that it can get into people's hands beforehand. But until then, Sigve Tonstad's commentary would be a good place to go. I have that pulled up in front of me right now. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. So just so we don't run out of time, because I know your time is valuable. What are there books? Are there podcasts, lectures, YouTube channels? Where would you direct people to get a better understanding of just biblical studies? And you could be as broad or as specific as you want. Yeah. A great podcast that I'm involved with is on script and uh, I we interview biblical scholars about their work and sometimes a little bit more broadly than that we've had one or two debates on there I've given some papers on Bart's reading of Romans and so on and so forth so there's different things there 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 are so many great podcasts out there when it comes to reading Paul and this stuff John Depew has come out with a couple of excellent YouTube videos on this rereading of Romans. In fact, let me just find the title of those because it's a while since I've looked at them. So you'll find them on YouTube as an apocalyptic rereading of Romans. In his channel is Apocalypse Here. His wife is super bright, by the way, and she's also involved in in a podcast with a friend at Duke, and the name of that podcast escapes me now, but people will find it in the notes when they look for John DePew. That's a great resource. And there's so many more that we could talk about. But there's another more fundamental sense in which biblical scholarship, if I can put this as bluntly as I can, is a spiritual battle. This isn't just about up-to-date scholarship. It is about wrestling with the truths of the gospel and allowing ourselves to be bent into right shape. And for that purpose, there is no shortcut to prayer and for the asking for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in navigating these sometimes complicated and overwhelming questions. If your readers are reading Paul and it leads them to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, then they're probably not going far wrong. Okay. 
unless you have anything else for us, Chris Tilling, I'm going to call this one good. Thank you so much for being here. An absolute pleasure, Jared. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. Take care.